All right. Well, it is great to have everyone in here. It's great to have everyone who's up in the overflow room. And uh, if this is your first time at Minooka Bible Church, my name is Errol McFadden. I'm the lead pastor here. Um, if you're a regular attender and you're not used to seeing me in a suit, my name is Errol McFadden. I'm the lead pastor here. <laughs> Somebody last night, they, seriously, they come up to me and they're like, who died? <laughs> and the truth is that the great thing about Easter is that we're not celebrating a death, are we? We're celebrating a resurrection because he is risen. risen All right, in the upper, in the overflow room, he is risen. (laughs) It's almost like I could hear you from here. Everyone here, he is risen. risen. All right, fantastic. Here's the great thing. Showing up at Easter, you don't even have to be religious to do it, right? I mean, a lot, a lot of us here, we've said this before, but you're, you're here kind of because you're hostages. (laughs) Somebody invited you and you're here and you're here because you got a a, a promised lunch afterwards, which is great. And that's cool. But the thing is, is that one of the things that uh, gets a little bit sketchy about showing up to church with regard to, with regard to Easter is this idea like, ah, am I, am I outing myself as someone who believes all this? And the truth is, is that you really aren't. In fact, this is an amazing, amazing week to be at church to kind of investigate what, what do these people even believe? And how, I mean, I kind of get the story, I kind of understand it, but how much of it do I actually digest myself? How much of it do I actually bite off and swallow myself? Or do I actually say, I'm just, again, here for the lunch? The cool thing is, is that as religious as it feels possibly to be at church or even at church on Sunday for Easter Sunday, Easter is actually the proclamation of the end of religion. Easter itself, what it's proclaiming is, it's the proclaiming the end of religion. And it's, it's proclaiming the end of religion because the two things that Mary didn't find, when Mary Magdalene didn't find when she got to the tomb, and one thing she did find. Two things she didn't find, one thing she did. And the first thing she didn't find was she didn't find a patriarch to be memorialized. What we're going to do right now is stand uh, for the reading of God's word. So when, if you're in the upper room and right here as well, if you could please stand. As we read through John chapter 20, we're going to read through the first uh, 18 verses of this. This is the, the empty tomb account. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. By the way, John is writing this gospel account. And whenever John doesn't want to, like, you know, brag, he doesn't mention his name. He just says, the disciple Jesus loved, or the other disciple but he's basically bragging. So just, listen, just hear, hear how he talks about himself. Um, so he came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they've taken the Lord from the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter. John. And reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb, crying. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. 
They asked her, woman, what are you, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said. I don't know where they've left them or where they put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I'll go get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. She said, and then Jesus said, do not hold on to me for I've yet ascended to the father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the, to the other disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. The first thing that Mary doesn't see, she doesn't see a patriarch be memorialized. Mary is not going to the tomb expecting to see Jesus standing behind her, is she? What is she expecting to do? She's expecting to mourn. This is basically the equivalent of a funeral because this is, this is literally days, just a couple days between when Jesus died and when she's going to visit the tomb. The, you know, it, it was not something where you could keep a body around, a corpse around a long time to prepare for a funeral. This isn't her going to a graveside three years later. She's going to the tomb to mourn. Mourn the, the fact that this relationship, this friendship, this, this following of this rabbi was dead. It was over. When he died, it died. And she's going to mourn. Now that, that's something that's actually pretty religious. Every world religion that you can like adhere to has got some type of a patriarch that you can go to and memorialize. If you want to, if you're a Muslim, for example, if you wanted to research the life of Muhammad, you would go to, uh, you would go to Medina in Saudi Arabia where his tomb is, and, and you could actually see the tomb, and you could, it'll, it'll have aspects of his teaching, and you could actually reflect on his teaching, and you could say, this is the guy who brought us the Quran, this is the guy who's taught us all these things, and you could actually see the source of the world religion in this, that tomb, laying there. If you go to uh, Kushinagar in, in India, you'll see the place where, um, Maha, where Buddha was, was cremated, and the, the actual place where they spread out his ashes and the different locations they spread his ashes to, you could read up on his teaching. Because again, if you've got a great world religion, you've got to have someone's teaching and, and someone's body even that you can go and memorialize what happened in their life that you can walk in the legacy of. And yet, Easter robs Mary of this experience. Easter robs Mary of a memorial because the body isn't there. She cannot go back and memorialize. She can't just simply gather his teachings and reflect upon in memory of Jesus because Jesus is not, he did not stay in the tomb. He didn't give her that opportunity. She did not find a patriarch to be memorialized. But the second reason that Easter is a proclamation of the end of religion as we know it is because there's also not a propaganda to be spun. You don't find uh, Mary coming upon a scene that works in the first century for something that's going to start a world religion. If you're going to start a world religion, you need to, and you've got to know the time and the demographic of the people that you're in. What is their need right now? How can I mix some historical facts with some kind of fantasy land facts and weave them together into the target demographic that I'm trying to reach? And hopefully it'll take seed. And if it evolves over time, sweet, but we got to reach the first group that's hearing it. Otherwise, it'll never take root, right? And so as, as, as you know, cynically or, or possibly on the positive spin, skeptically, we could look back and say, 
Okay, this whole thing with Jesus, Jesus, yes, historical figure, yes, crucified, died. Arose from the grave, that's just propaganda. I mean, Mary going and seeing Jesus face-to-face physically, and that, that's, that's part of the, the, the story that helps us believe happy things, but we can't take that seriously. I mean, even, even the idea that they believed that, what pro- probably happened was Jesus was a real guy, he had real teachings, he said he was the Messiah, and every, I mean, if you say you're the Messiah and people love your teaching, they're going to get around you, they're going to follow you, and, and, and then if you die, they're going to be heartbroken. All of us have lost people and we wish that they could be alive, we wish that we could bring them back. And if this person was someone that we put on the level of the Messiah, how can you get over that? And so they were so distraught and so messed up by the experience of losing their teacher, their Messiah, that they ended up just saying, maybe he didn't die. Maybe he died, but he didn't stay dead. Maybe we saw him. And then all of a sudden, the propaganda gets spread about this dead Messiah, but he's now alive. That would work if, it, if not for a couple of things. First off, all of the accounts that we see in the Gospels, these are the people that should be the perpetrators of the propaganda, the people that are, are, are trying to get this story sold. They always reflect on themselves as idiots. Like, they're like, yeah, we didn't even get that. This other time, we didn't even understand that. Even in this account, John is writing, as much as he's bragging on himself, he says, they still didn't understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. I'm going to start a world religion and say, I'm so unspiritual, I didn't even understand the only, you know, my text that should have pointed to this. I didn't get it. So they're defacing themselves and outing themselves as morons all the way through this. They're not shining starters of a world religion. They're pointing to something else. But not only that, if you, if, you, if you take away that, you have two other things that absolutely destroy the propaganda concept. And that's Mary and the Myriad of Dead Messiahs. And if you're looking for a great band name, Mary and the Myriad of Dead Messiahs is fantastic. Joel? Okay, yeah. All right. Mary and the, de- and the Myriad of... De- Let's start with the Dead Messiahs. Jesus was not the only Messiah. Not in the first century. In fact, it was weird because it's like... Everyone had this feeling. We're, we're, we're occupied by Rome. Every, you know, Rome is coming down upon us. And it, like, it just feels like this is when the Messiah that we've heard about from the Old Testament should come, where we get victory and we get liberated. We need a Messiah. And that was like ripe for the picking because all of a sudden people are starting talking about Messiahs. Ed, Ed the Messiah. Have you heard his teaching? I love his teaching. Ed? I sat next to Ed in like seventh grade algebra. He was... Uh, No, no, no. But his teaching's amazing. And Ed says he's going to rid Palestine of our oppressors. And he is going to be the one that God's going to use. The one that we learned about as kids. Ed? Yeah. Let's go listen to him. Okay. And everyone like loves Ed. Ed is like teaching and people are gathering around. Ed, Ed, Ed. Ed the Messiah. And everyone's like, he's going to take down Rome. And everyone's paying attention to Ed, including Rome. And Rome's like, Ed's a problem. We can't have this problem. So they crucify Ed. And everyone's like, eh, Derek, 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 Derek the Messiah. Derek the Messiah, he beat my brother up in seventh grade. I know, I know. But you know what? He was kind of a bully back then. But now he might be a bully to the Romans. And have you heard? He, like, he can heal people and he's got great teachings. Really, Derek, for real. Derek. Everyone's paying attention to Derek, including Rome. So Rome's like, we can't have this problem. And they crucified Derek. And here's what people don't do. People don't say, Derek has died. Let us live on with the teachings of Derek. 
He, let's actually, let's communicate that Derek isn't really dead. He's risen from the grave. Whether physically or metaphysically, he's risen from the grave in our hearts and let's continue on. In the first century, we looking back on people in, the, in that first century might think that they're dumb enough to do that. But the first century people did not pull that off. Not in Palestine, not with the Messiahs. Your shelf life as a Messiah is killed if you get killed. The indication you're not who you thought you were or who other people thought you were is if you get killed by the Romans, the very people you're supposed to liberate the people from. And so people wouldn't go from Ed and stick with Ed. They would go from Ed to Derek and so on and so forth, which explains why why it's so offensive to us when we're reading in the Gospels and we see all of Jesus' bail on him as soon as he gets arrested by the Romans. Why? Because they've heard this story before. They know how this goes. You get arrested by the Romans and the same thing's going to happen to Jesus that happened to Ed and Derek. He's going to get crucified. And sure enough, he did. So what are the disciples experiencing on Saturday before the resurrection? The Saturday before Easter. I knew it. My faith died that day because I pushed all my chips in on the fact that he was the Messiah and just like all these other fake messiahs, I thought he was real. I mean, we saw stuff we couldn't explain. What the people in the first century wouldn't do is be able to maintain a dead messiah account with people that are still living and be able to pull that off. The dead Messiah actually blows that out of the water. But not only that, Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene. So Mary, in all of the gospel accounts, you have women as the first eyewitnesses. Women were the first eyewitnesses to the fact that G, the tomb was empty. And for us, we might think, okay, yeah, so big deal. That's 2019 us. First century us radically, thought about this radically different. Um, the, the place of women, they were not people that you could believe. In fact, even the disciples in another gospel account thinks Mary is hysterical. They think she's out of her mind. The, the perspective back then was that if you have like a fender bender on the way to work, you know, with horses or whatever, and uh, you're on the way to work and someone like, you know, rear ends your horse, and then you have to go to court, and then there's this lady, it says, look, I saw the whole thing, it's his fault. No one would say, oh, great, come on over here. Let's, can we hear your testimony? They'd say, yeah, do we have any males? Okay, you, yeah, come over here. Because they were not going to listen to a female. And if you don't believe me, in the second century, there's this Greek philosopher named Celsus, okay? And Celsus um, is a guy, who, he was like the Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins of his day. He thought Christianity was super dumb. In fact, in the second century, he doesn't understand why is it that his own learned people are believing this myth about this that God loves creation so much that God becomes man, walks among them, and then he dies on a cross for the people that hate him. And then he rises again. And, and, and Celsus knew that if you could debunk the resurrection, the whole thing gets flushed on the toilet. And so he's like, okay, here's my drop the mic argument for why you shouldn't believe any of this Christianity garbage. Here's my drop the mic expression of why you should just kick this... Th philosophy, this religion, to the curb. And this is what he says. It's kind of offensive. This, oh, that's Celsus. That picture's kind of offensive. Sorry, Celsus. All right, here's what he says. How can anyone expect rational men to listen to the testimony of a hysterical female? And then everyone in the second century is like, oh, good point. This was a lady? You can't believe that. 
She's hysterical. Why? She's a female. That was the second century perspective. And so here's the thing. If you're starting a world religion, you got to spin propaganda that that culture gets and it can embrace. And not in the first century, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, on for quite a long time, would anyone say, oh yeah, why do I believe this is credible? Because there was an eyewitness and the eyewitness happens to be female. Eyewitnesses have to be, happen to be female. That was the way that you would actually debunk it. In fact, the crazy thing is, is that the very thing that makes the first century or second century atheist not believe in the resurrection is the very thing that's actually causing so many atheists in the 21st century to believe that the gospel account is actually the historical account because there is no way that you would start propaganda by saying, and the first eyewitnesses were female. The only reason you would do something so dumb in the first and second century is if it actually happened. Mary does not find a patriarch to be memorialized and she gets robbed of a situation to have propaganda, a good story that we can kind of fuzz the details on just to make happen. No, folks, Easter is the end of religion. It's the end of religion as we know it, as we've seen all around the world. And, and obviously Christianity can become a lot of things, but the essence is so radically different because there's not a patriarch to be memorialized, not a propaganda to be spun, but instead what Mary finds at the tomb is a person to be received. That is the essence of the end of religion. This is not a dead hero. It's not a dead Messiah. It is a living Messiah. And that is the game changer that shifts her perspective. In fact, it's so, it's so crazy because when you see her actually responding to Jesus, she understands that this is a game changer. She thought her faith was over when Jesus died. When she sees the resurrected Christ, she realizes that everything has changed. Nothing can be the same. She, saw, she sees a person that has been received. And every Christian from that point on, every follower of Jesus, they've put their trust not in a world system, not in a world religion, but in a risen Savior. Paul, he was a guy who, with regard to Jesus, we've said this before, Paul's a guy who, who did not like Jesus. He didn't like Christians. He, in fact, he thought that Jesus was not only, and Jesus' teachings were not only wrong, they were harmful to the culture. And so Paul was doing everything he could to undo and kick out Christianity because he thought it was harmful to the culture to the point of whatever means necessary to eliminate this threat. If people are talking about it, let's kill down the threat, including killing people. That was Paul's perspective. Then he meets Jesus on, a road, on the road to Damascus and his life gets flipped. And the weird thing is, is that this is a person that within 20 years of the resurrection of Jesus, 20 years. Again, that's, that's like us looking back on, on 9-11 or just before 9-11. That's us looking back to when the Matrix just came out. Okay, not a crazy, for those of you that are over 20, that's not a crazy amount of time. It's like, whoa, that's like, I can actually tell you where I was when these things happened. I could tell you about watching the footage on the news. And that's, that's Paul, 20 years after the resurrection, writing about it, saying, listen, I didn't just believe it because I had an encounter with Jesus. I went back and I actually entertained and engaged the eyewitnesses. And you know what? There's hundreds of them that are still alive today that didn't just have a, a glance meeting with Jesus, but had several interactions with the resurrected Christ. You could go and talk to them today. And he said, everything pivots on this. If Jesus didn't rise from the grave, what are we doing wasting our time with this religious garbage? Paul's perspective was this is not built around a bunch of rules that we can make 
to believe something that we could really, really just wish is true. This is built around a person who rose. Lee Strobel, he, uh, he was an atheist. He tweeted this um, a week ago. He said, I didn't become a Christian because God promised I'd have a happier life than I had as an atheist. Rather, I became a Christian because the evidence was so compelling. Jesus really is the one and only son of God who proved his divinity by rising from the dead. Have you received him? Have you received Jesus? Not just the religion of Christianity. Have you received Jesus? Where he is what he's called himself to be, the, the king, the living hope, the one that, that we have. If you haven't, if you haven't, don't become a Christian because it's going to make your life better. Don't become a Christian because you're going to feel more secure in your, your place in this world. Don't become a Christian because you have a great hope about a life after this life. Become a Christian. Follow Jesus because it's true. Because he rose. You know, the, the thing that if you, if you are making that decision, that contemplating that, you have to, I mean, just as a thinking person. Paul, the word that they use, Paul uses, or not, um, not Paul, but John uses describing Peter. When it says that he's, when he was investigating the tomb, the word for saw is not the, the typical word for, for see, which is blepo. He actually uses a different word, with, which is theorio, which means evidence, which means investigation, which means Peter actually had to think about this. If you're not a follower of Jesus, there's evidence out there, and I want to encourage you to look for it. But I, I, just for what I want to tell you right now, Putting your trust in Jesus, you're putting your trust in the event of the resurrection. You let that be the reality check for you. You realize that, that what you have is the end of religion because what religion says is this. Every world religion says this. If you do enough of this, if you do all these things, then you're going to be accepted by God. If you change your life, you'll be accepted by God. Christianity says this. In Christ, you are accepted and therefore your life is changed. You don't do all this. And that's the person that you're receiving. Now, here's the crazy thing. How many of you uh, binge watch uh, shows? Okay, show of hands up in the upper room. Okay, this is a safe place. We can say this. It's okay. Um, binge watching is something that's a, a relatively recent phenomenon, right? It's something where like if everyone in the office or everyone at your school or all your friends are into a show and you're just like, I don't know, you were reading books or something, and so you didn't catch up, and it's like all of a sudden people are like three seasons into a show, and like, oh, it's amazing, it's changed my life, and then you're like, oh, I feel like I'm such a loser, and so what you do is you go to Netflix or whatever else, and you start to just like binge watch every episode, story after story after story, and then you caught up, and you no longer feel like a loser, um, which is great, Uh, but the other thing that's also crazy is this. Some people do this. They don't simply binge watch to catch up. They'll go through six, seven seasons or whatever, watching something every week possibly, and then they get to the end of the show, and then there's the, the series finale, and it's just so profound or so huge or such a huge reveal that people then, they don't just go, ah, I'm done. They go back, and they start watching from the beginning episode after episode. Why? Because they missed things. This was such an epic ending. It's like, this makes so much sense. I didn't even get this back then. So then they come back over here and they're starting to watch like, I didn't even see that there. That's amazing. Oh, now I'm enjoying this even more now that I know the ending. And they go through like that. That's the Gospels. The Gospels are the first historical evidence of binge watching. Because what the disciples do is this. 
They follow Jesus, and they're kind of halfway paying attention. I don't understand. What then they get to the end. Jesus dies on the cross. They lose their faith. And then they see the resurrected Christ. And they're like, wait a minute. You remember when we were over there, and we were like, what is he talking about? Now we know. We got to record what he said. And so now all of a sudden they're gathering and they're sharing it verbally. And all of a sudden, eventually they start to writing it all down. And now what they can do is they can go back and binge watch Jesus' teachings all through the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They get to go through and see story after story. after Like, see, I didn't even know. That's why they say stuff like John said. They still didn't understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. That's why there's so many points in the passages in the Gospels where they're like, we didn't but we didn't understand what Jesus meant yet until that. And the cool thing is this, is as they're going through, they get a chance to see who is this person that we've received? Who is this Messiah that is our living hope? And they get to look back on things like in Luke. When Jesus is wanting them to know the Father's heart, what is God like versus every other world religion? And he says this, every, other, every kind of system of thought, this is so unique. Jesus says, there's this dad with these two kids and they're having family problems. Because that's what, in, in the first century, they had family problems. He's dad with these two kids and the first kid is super great, like straight A kid, he always doing, is doing what dad, he's like, he's the older kid. How many of you are the older kids? Okay, yeah, you know. And so he's just doing everything right. Um, and then there's the younger kid, he's a punk. This guy's a jerk. He's just basically like, I'll never be like him. And so he's, his dad's a good dad, but he's just like, you know what, I'm done. I'm so done with this life. Like, when my dad dies, I get a third of this. I mean, I get more than a third of this property. This all gets to be mine. My dad, he's like living forever. Like, he's like 67. When is he going to die? I don't know. Is he like exercising or using essential oils? What what is it? What is the thing that he... But he's just like... Dad, I know that when you die... I get a, a portion of this. But I'm tired of waiting for you to die. I want my inheritance now. I'm done with your roles. I'm done with being a part of this family. And what the dad doesn't do in those times is go to a safe like, okay, son, okay, I hear what you're saying. Here's, let me just put it in a bag for you, okay? You want a backpack? Okay, great. Here's a little sippy cup. Okay, enjoy. They didn't have like a safe if you're going to get an inheritance, it's the property that the family lives on. It's the cattle that people are using for food. And so the father has to divide that to give it to this punk kid. Now, this Jesus is telling this story to a group of Jewish people who are just like getting, their, their blood is boiling as they're hearing this. On top of that, he makes it even more offensive because this is a, a Jewish um, community that this kid is leaving, but he's leaving and he's now going to a Gentile community. And this Gentile community, he's blowing, he's basically trading in all of these resources that he's received as his early inheritance on partying at big time and prostitutes. And he's, blow, he's, he's, he's like spending it, so he's living large and everyone in this community that he's in loves him because he's, he's got the cash. He's able to do, he's having the biggest parties and everything's going great. Until all of a sudden, the, the, the money that he has, all the re- I, can you imagine how long it would take to run out of those resources? But this kid was living large, and a famine hits the land. And then everyone leaves him. He's a Jewish kid alone in a Gentile community. He's got no cash, and he's starving to death. And everyone that Jesus is telling the story to is like, good. 
<laughs> Good. Kid deserves it. And then all of a sudden, the kid goes over in Jesus' story, and, and, and he gets work at this guy's house. And, this is a, and the guy gives him a job, feeding the pigs. Now, that may not mean much to you, but to a Jewish kid who understood that pigs were not kosher, you couldn't eat them, they were filthy animals, and it was something that, in fact, if anything, what a pig was good for was used as a racial slur against Gentiles, those Gentile pigs. So now all of a sudden, this Jewish kid is getting hired by this Gentile worker who's like, oh, great, you know what? You, I've got a job for you. Your people have called my people pigs for years. Guess what you're going to do? You're not as good a, as a pig. You're going to be serving the pigs. And Jesus talks about this kid being so hungry that he's looking at what he's feeding the pigs and just wishing that he could eat it himself. And then he's just like, what am I doing? What am I doing? My dad's servants are better treated than this. What am I doing? They'll never accept me back. After everything that I've done, there's no way I'm, there's no way I'm going to be able to be accepted back. My brother hates me. My dad probably hates me. What have I done? Okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go back home. I'm going to go back home. I'm going to tell my dad, look, I get it. I can't be your kid anymore. I don't deserve to be called your son, but I'm going to work for you for the rest of my life. I won't be your son. I won't have to live in the house, but I'll, I'll serve you. I'll pay it back. I've wasted so much money. I will pay you back with my service. And over the course of my whole life, I won't have to be called your son. I don't have to be in good standing with you or the community, but I will serve you as your, just give me a place to stay and eat. I will make it up to you. And the son spells out a very good expression of religion. I can make this back. I can earn this. I can give it to you. And so he goes religiously back to his dad. Now, in that culture, we've talked about this before as well, there's this ceremony that every, if you've done something that messed up to your dad, there was a way to let you know that you should be punished for this, that you're broken off from this community, you've, you've, you're, that you're, you're a broken person. And if they got wind that, you know, Larry's coming back into town, what they would do is like, hey, that kid's coming back. He's probably asking his dad for cash. Not on our watch. And they would go into their house, and they would get a large earthen jar, like a, like a ceramic jar, and they would stand with this jar, lining the streets on both sides like a gauntlet, waiting for him to walk through. And as this kid walks through back into town, they would raise the jars and they would slam it down on the ground right at his feet. So the shards go everywhere. And he keeps on walking. The next person slams it down. And the next person slams it down every step back to the property that he left to let him know, you have broken your father's heart. You have broken our heart. And you are broken from this community. Your life is the shards. Shame on you. And that made everyone feel a lot better. This kid is on his way back. He's rehearsing the speech. I'm, I've sinned against heaven and against you, Father. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I will work this off. I can make this up to you. And yet, Jesus interrupts his story with a countercultural messaging because it's not the people that see the kid first. It's the dad. Why? Because he's been waiting. He's been waiting for the son to return. And on the property, he sees the son far off. And he does something that is dishonorable in that society, in that culture. He runs. If you're older than 20 years old in that culture, you don't run. Because men in that time wore dresses. And in order to run, you would have to hike up that skirt and run and expose your legs, which was dishonorable. And yet Jesus says, this dad did that. 
This dad sprints through town, and all of a sudden, people are getting their earthen jars. All right, this is, it's called the kazaza. Sir. The kazaza is about to happen. And they're like raising it over the head, and all of a sudden, dad, hey. And he runs right past him, and he gets to the kid, and the kid looks at him, and, and he says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the dad interrupts the speech. He stops the religious statement and says, nope. And he hugs him, and he's crying, and he says to him, We are about to party because my son was lost and now he is found. What kind of a person is he? What kind of a person did Mary see in the garden? What kind of person have I received as my Savior? And many of you have received as your Savior. It is the God who looks at the brokenness. It doesn't say, I don't see it. It's the God who says, I am going to step into the dishonor that is rightfully yours from your decisions and your breaking of the Father's heart, but I'm going to dishonor myself and run right past the haters to get to you. The thing behind us, all these sticks and stuff are just intended to look like just a bunch of shards to depict the fact that our life is that. It's the brokenness of these shards, and yet it is Jesus. It is Jesus who gathers these shards together, and he forms them together almost into into like a stained glass window. It's beautiful. Only an artist can do that. It can only be done out of love. But Jesus has done that for you and for me. He died on the cross for our sins. He did battle with our sins so that we would not experience hell now or ever again, being distant from God, that we would be with him. Have you received him? Let's pray. Actually, can we stand and pray? Lord Jesus, very many people in this room, God, we have come here as people that are echoing this. We've, we, this is our story. This is part of who we are. But Lord, there's people here who have shown up and, and maybe they were invited or maybe they just decided to show up on Easter and they've, they've done church or they've done church in the past or they've believed things about you, but they've never received you. Lord God, your word reminds us that those who receive you, those who believe in your name, have the right to be called children of God. We're not broken off from the community. We're not broken off from the Father because of what you accomplished on the cross, Jesus. Lord, this is our opportunity to be adopted in to your family, not because of what we could do or how, what we could pay off, because of the fact that you and your relationship to us and your love for us made the sacrifice necessary for us to be brought back home. If you've never done that, as we're praying, turn your heart over to Jesus Seek him for the forgiveness for the shards in the street, but thank him for enduring the punishment on himself so that we didn't have to. And enjoy the fact that he embraces you to walk from this point on. Ask him to lead your life based on his accomplishment on the cross and in his resurrection from this day forward. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your sacrifice. It's in your name and for your glory that we pray. And all God's people said, amen.